Good evening and welcome to the program. My guest tonight is Marxist economist Alan Freeman, and what we'll be discussing is imperialism, value transfer, and third worldism. So to you, Mr. Freeman, my first question is, how did Britain stabilize itself with the use of imperialism? I think it's important to distinguish between the, what you might call the colonial phase of British capitalism and what is normally called the new imperialism. Imperialism in the sense of like Julius Caesar has been around for yonks, but the new imperialism was a specifically capitalist imperialism. And it was a great puzzle for everybody. Why was this apparently antique form reappearing at a time when what we're supposed to get is progress? Okay, so that's the new imperialism. Now, the history of it is that Britain was the first capitalist power and was also the first colonial power. We're not really talking about um, stabilisation. This is how British capitalism got itself off the ground. It essentially used the rest of the world as its supply of raw materials, uh, food and with the slave trade, of course, slave labour, which was a capitalist commodity one should not forget and which produced under capitalist conditions. It produced commodities for sale using machinery like the cotton gin. So it is... Britain got itself off the ground on the basis of its colonies. Now, as the new Radica Desai calls contender states came along, like Germany and America, they looked at what Britain was doing and said, hey guys, we want a piece of the action. But they couldn't just set up their own colonies because Britain had a lot of stuff. So they first of all went into places where Britain had not gone and gone, and you had this... Uh, I can't remember the exact word, rush for empire, but rush for territory. Everybody was trying to get territory. But they were trying to use this as the preserve of their industrial capitals. So you had a simultaneous conflict of uh, armies and capitals, what Lenin described as carving up the markets of the world and carving up the territories of the world between giant trusts or combines. Well, the interesting thing is, why didn't Britain simply collapse at that point, or why didn't it undergo some kind of uh, uh, civil war or whatever? It did not. And to the contrary, it showed remarkable resilience, if you think. Germany's rise dates from about 1870. That's when you get the new industrial processes, the steel process, the chemicals and all the rest of it. You get the defeat of the, uh, you get the defeat of the French and Germany rising to be, you know, probably the dominant military power. You're in the run up to World War One. Why doesn't Britain just blow up and dry up and blow away? More important, why doesn't it lose World War One? And yet more important, why doesn't it lose World War Two? Well, there's a couple of answers. The reason it didn't lose World War Two is because of the Soviet Union. Everybody knows that. But why didn't it lose World War... Well, everybody knows it, but not everybody admits it. But it did. World War One was more interesting. It basically lined up behind it all the reactionary powers that it could muster and said, look, do you want a world dominated by Germany? If not, join us. Which eventually they did, although the US said we're staying out until a suitable time has arrived that we can intervene, and in 1917 they did, just at the moment when the war was about to end, and, and, and said we can now benefit by taking Britain's position as the leading imperialist power. So you not only have the undermining of British power by 
the other countries, you know, the contender states. But you have America, particularly with the end of the Second War, successfully placing itself in a position that it thought Britain had been in. Now, there are various modifications for that. It didn't undertake on the whole territorial conquest. It instead tried to set up the dollar as its world... Uh, well, it did set up the dollar as a world currency uh, and stuff that Radhika Desai has discussed in her book. But this question comes back. It didn't lose the First World War. It didn't have a revolution when everybody else was getting some serious problems after the First World War. It didn't have anything like the civil unrest in the 1930s that you had even in America. And it came out of World War Two as playing Robin to the USA's Batman. So a role that now seems to have been taken on by Monsieur Macron. So how did they do it? Well, basically they clung onto a part of the world that they'd conquered. They set up something called the Commonwealth, which was a preferential trade area. They maintained the colonies. India remained a colony until independence. The African territories uh, had to fight damned hard for their freedom and are still vilified and excoriated today as terrorists. People like uh, Jomo Kenyatta, for example, uh, a heroic figure in my opinion, you know, is still thought of as, you know, the leader of African terrorism in, in, in the British discourse. But what they were able to do, and you can look at the unemployment figures, you can look at the trade figures, in the 1930s they isolated themselves from the worst effects of the Depression. So the Depression hit the USA much harder than the UK. And it essentially used the money that came out of all that to buy off its own working class. Having said that, that's a very quick historical survey. The practice began in 1870, exactly at the time when Germany is becoming the contender power that everybody has to watch when America is coming from behind. You have a huge rupture within the British political system. You have the division of the Liberal Party, led by Gladstone, into what later became the Unionist Party and the Liberal Party, as it now is. And the issue was Home Rule for Ireland. And the people who opposed Home Rule for Ireland were precisely the Liberal Industrialists of Birmingham, under people like Joseph Chamberlain, who are very, very explicit. They say the only way we're going to prevent the civil war in Britain is to create an army of black slaves in Africa, get hold of Africa's diamonds, Africa's resources, uh, and let them be the people who suffer. And that's how we'll rescue the population. And the Liberal Party, as late as 1905, was the leading reform party in, in, in Britain. Uh, Lloyd George is well known for having a, a relatively radical programme of reform, housing, education. These reforms were all introduced by the old Liberal Party. Meanwhile, the Home Rulers were coming from behind. They had formed a separate party called the Unionist Party. That Unionist Party joined the Conservatives, which became the Conservative and Unionist Party, which came to its... Uh, consolidated itself in the Boer War. And the Labour Party emerged. Now, what does the Labour Party do? The Labour Party basically says the welfare measures of the Liberals, of Chamberlain, and these guys 
are pretty good for us because we can represent our base if we can keep delivering these, maybe expand it with a lot of socialist rhetoric. So, and this is a phenomenon you don't just find in Britain. The party of reform, in the sense of domestic reform and welfareism and protecting the living standards of working people, which they did, I don't deny that, does it by maintaining the imperialist stance of the nation and basically forming an alliance with the conservative and unionists to say, we're not going to touch empire, we're not going to touch Britain's um, position in the world because we have a tacit understanding that that's what allows us to deliver the reforms. So that's what I would call the stabilisation through imperialism that Britain went through. Mm-hmm. My second question to you, Mr. Freeman, is do they use colonial extraction to pay for the welfare state? I've been doing quite a lot of study of the relation between various forms of what Marx calls surplus profit. Now, contrary to the way that a lot of Marxists perceive what happens in world capitalism, the profit rate never actually equalises either within a nation or within the world as a whole. What happens is that certain capitals extract higher profits and others extract lower profits. In the theoretical perfect world, these would equal out and, 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 and the, guys, uh, the guys who are getting the higher profits would have their profits eroded because capital would move into the production of whatever it is they're doing. There are two or three very important cases where that doesn't happen. One of those is where you've got a rent-based surplus profit. So your high profit basically arises from a marginally higher return on some scarce resource. That can be uh, cotton, as in antebellum South of America. It can be uh, raw products or food of any kind, which depend on particular types of land. Land that produces rubber, or in the case of the US domination, bananas, or whatever. That's one way. Mining as well becomes, especially in the modern world, in this extractivist world, an excellent source of surplus profits because you're holding something the other guys just can't get because it's a scarce resource. That's the first kind of surplus profit. The second is when you have a technical advantage. So you're simply more efficient than everybody else. And if you're more efficient at producing the same thing, you can produce it for a lower cost, you can undercut your rivals by forcing the price down, and there is a transfer of surplus value from the lower, efficient, less efficient producers to the more efficient ones. Now, if there was the complete migration of capital, that would even out, but in the world of nation-states, it doesn't. And you get countries like the USA or Germany who specialise in holding on to a kind of permanent monopoly of technical superiority. This is now very evident in the attitude of the United States to a trade war with China, where the key to the whole thing is this attempt to basically junk ZT, I think it's called, the Electronics Consortium, and, and stop China producing Huawei, uh, you know, rivaling Samsung or whatever, uh, under the flimsiest of excuses, it has to be said, and turn China back towards being a provider of primaries and perhaps manufactured goods, but not getting into the real high-tech market. They're just trying to keep that technical super profit. So if you can keep a monopoly of that technical super profit, 
That's another way you can get money. A third way, which actually unites and organises these, are the special privileges of finance capital. And finance capital, because it operates through the sale of fictitious capitals and through the manipulation of financial markets, or not even manipulation, just the working of financial markets, has a permanent built-in advantage, which it attempts to exploit. It generally causes a crisis, so it doesn't hang on to it for forever. But if it's located in a particular place, such as London or New York, it can maintain a permanent source of surplus profit. So what you find in the way that nations battle with each other is that there's a kind of repetition of Marx's equalisation of the rate of profit, but at the very highest level. The so-called advanced nations, the imperialist nations, work together to keep in their hands the control of all these three sources of surplus value. Technical surplus profit, rent and you know, ownership of resources, and financial surplus profit. Between them, there's a kind of division of labour. So what you find is Britain classically concentrates on its extractive and ownership of resources and its financial super profit. Germany classically, and Japan, not only concentrate on the technical super profit, but were forced to do so by losing the Second World War. So America wouldn't let them re-expand into becoming financial or, or, or rental resource extractive powers. They're now beginning to start to try that again. It's not working out very well for them, but that's what they want. And then you get America, who's trying to juggle all three. I, I think of America as being somebody trying to balance on a tripod. There's the three sources of surplus value, technical, extractive, and financial. And it can't keep all three legs up at once. So one of the legs keeps falling away. Uh, and then all it's left with is military. Now, where is Britain sitting in all this? Well, basically, it's focusing on the extraction of financial profit and the extraction of uh, extractive and rent profits. And its industry goes down the pan. The history of Britain from basically 1948 onwards, and in fact it goes back much further, is a long, prolonged history of self-inflicted industrial decline. Because instead of directing the surplus value which it controls into the country to rebuild its industries, it sends it to God knows where. I mean, the latest is Syria, right? Uh, this is a game that's played out. It's not getting there. But it does, as a result of these trades, particularly in the colonial period, the trade with India, which finances absolutely everything, manage to keep a kind of system of balances going, especially when it has financial strength as well, through which it can channel money back into the preservation of a level of income which allows for taxation sufficient to provide a, a, a range of material benefits. Most importantly, it doesn't care too much about the workers getting higher wages. So I would say that whilst this is the way that it's financed, I would avoid any crude simplification. They just take the money off the colonies and plough it back in. There's just a general system of redistribution of this surplus profit that allows them to pay relatively high wages. I say relatively because uh, I'm not saying the condition of the British working class was by any chance, any stretch of the imagination, wonderful. It was, it was pretty dreadful, but relatively compared with, say, Sri Lanka or Ceylon, right, uh, or, or, or South Africa, and, 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 and remains pretty good compared with those, except for the real sort of underclass.
it can keep that up and it can keep up the health service, free education system up to 16 and all the other things that we associate with, uh, with welfareism. So my answer would be yes, but it's not a simple answer. It's not, it's not done in a simple way. Now, my third question is, do lesser imperialist powers like Canada do the same thing? It's one of the things that I think is um, important to investigate. And I think that the Canadian left, after a long period of harboring the illusion that Canada was just some kind of semi-developed country, is at last cottoning on to the fact that it's part of the imperialist system. And there's some excellent work done by people like Paul Kellogg and others who, unfortunately, I can't name because I've forgotten their names, who have, have studied empirically the immense strength of particularly extractive capitalism in Canada. I mean, the Toronto Stock Exchange is, I think, the main minerals exchange in the world. And these guys are up to their necks in what's going on in Venezuela, where there's gold, minerals and all the rest of it. Uh, in Africa, everywhere there's dirty dealings going on with mining, you find Canadians at the forefront of that. I think with the US, that's pretty obvious that everybody knows that that's what it's been doing for a long time. Uh, that's why they're the principal sponsor of, of, of military coups, the world over. Whenever you find a military coup, you'll always find there's some resource that the US wants to get its hands on, starting with oil, okay? Um, I think it's probably something that the Marxists of each particular country need to investigate for themselves. And in order to do that, they, they need to change their focus from just looking at the domestic struggle that's going on inside their country and start asking, where do our capitalists get their surplus value from? So I would say yes, but it's specific to each country. Germany is a very classic example. Germany started with Bismarckism. Now, because Germany is a country in which technical rent is the most important thing, the basic deal you have in Germany is you can, the working class can contest the foreign policy of Germany all at once, except under Hitler when it can't contest anything. But particularly after 1946, it, it has a free reign to, you know, be very peaceful and ecological and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, the, 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 the sort of what you get is I've got it the wrong way around. They can they the can the agreement for the Brits is you support the foreign policy and you fight over wages. The agreement for the Germans is you agree over wages. You have you have Mitbestimmung and all the rest of it. And I'm sorry, retract that. They they have a fight over foreign policy. They actually contest Germany's foreign policy, but. The deal is that at work you have these joint joint workers' control councils and all the rest of it. So the way it works out in each country depends on the specifics of the type of surplus profit in which that country specialises, is what I would say. It's not identical, is the answer to your question. Another question. Uh, what are the mechanisms of value transfer between less developed and more developed regions of the globe in your view, do any of them relate to the redistribution of value from less productive capitals to more productive ones? I think it's very straightforward. It's, it's unequal exchange. Um, I think the problem in accepting that theoretically is that it wasn't argued very theoretically coherently by the people who knew it was happening. So if you go back to the developmental literature 
and the unequal exchange literature, people like Christian Palois, uh, Gunda Frank, uh, there's a long he- list of very illustrious people, even FHC of all people, FHQ. They tried to explain it using a, ma- a theoretical framework in which unequal exchange was not possible. They used an equilibrium framework. You can't explain it in that framework. Only if you allow that profit rates can differ can you explain unequal exchange. Then it's very straightforward. If you've got two bunches of people selling into the same market and one uses 40 hours of labour to do what the other can do in one hour of labour, then 40 hours of your labour are going to exchange against one hour of the superior country. So of course there's unequal exchange. Having said that, if there was the free flow of people and capital that is imagined by the neoliberals and which will never happen in a world of nations, this would, in theory, equalise out. And there are some tendencies in that direction, not actually caused by the free flow of capital, interestingly, but caused precisely by the states of the underdeveloped nations taking control of their economy. When they do that, and this is part of the example that proves the rule I've just been giving, when you have certainly a revolutionary country such as Soviet Russia or China actually taking control of the investment mechanism and saying, no, we're going to invest in our own country, and sometimes just the state doing it directly, you interrupt the normal flow of of, of, of surplus value out of your country. This even happens when you have a very determined developmental capitalist state. This is how South Korea developed. To some extent, that's how Japan developed to the point where it's got to. That's where Taiwan came from. In every case where you find an extremely strong state intervention into the development of industry, including the development of high tech, not accepting the position of being the supplier of resources, people and uh, raw materials, then you change it. So that is another proof that unequal exchange has been going on, because when you stop the mechanism of unequal exchange, the, 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 the backwardness goes away. Even, I mean this is a very important point, even colonial independence was enough to reverse the process of de-equalisation between India and Britain that had been going on for 150 years and the so-called Hindu rate of growth, the steady 3% rate of growth, dates from colonial independence. So yes, there is une- yes, Virginia, there is unequal exchange and you can stop it. And the way you stop it is by using your state to control your own industries and can manage trade, control your own currency and all those things. Now, for my final question, in my personal view, I see it as because of the value transfer between the first and the third world, the material living standards of first world people are so high that they lack any significant revolutionary potential. Uh, This is largely due to the flow of value and the relatively high wages of first world workers. Would you agree with this statement? Probably not. I think that what Everybody needs to go back and study is the history of Portugal in the 1970s because everybody thought that Portugal was the country least likely to have a revolution. Now you could argue because its democracy was extremely non-existent, there was an authoritarian clerical state, so there was a lot to rebel against. 
but the crucial that the, the, therefore there was a revolutionary process that opened in 1974. But their crucial thing was the defeat at the hands of Frelimo uh, and. Uh, I can't remember the other organ, but in, in Angola and Mozambique, aided, one should have said, by the you know, heroic support of, of Cuba, which was a phenomenal, um, phenomenal debt that the world owes to Cuba at that stage of the evolution of South, South African history. But at that point, the whole fabric collapsed. And the generals who had seen the light were actually the ones who were the most radical in the revolutionary process. So I would just not rule out that in the event of suffering really serious setbacks, you will have an extremely rapid process unfolding. The problem is it will not take the form that the left expects it to take. What the left in those countries, which is wedded to the social democratic conception, expects is some kind of domestic revolt of workers, which is focused on simply getting higher wages or... Um, you know, slightly better welfare state. That's not going to happen. It's not until you start to get things like what's happening in Britain under Corbyn, where you get the simultaneous battle of poor people for emancipation from poverty, combined with a, a long-nurtured awareness that racism has to be fought to the last drop of one's capacity, and the refusal to give in of a very significant section of the British public to Islamophobia, uh, racism of any kind, combined with third, an opposition to war. If you get that all combined, so you have, um, and also defence of minorities, defence of, of gay and queer rights, defence of LGBT in general, defence of, of black people's rights, of, of, of Muslim rights, of women's rights, of disabled people's rights, combined with opposition to war and combined with a battle basically to defend the living standards of, of, of all working people, not just poor working people, uh, the welfare state, for example, free education, free higher education, which is becoming a big issue now. When you get that combined thing going, um, it is possible that that could unleash quite a transformative process I'm not necessarily saying it would lead to the storming of the barricades, but it would be a very big change. Now, I think that's possible, but the precondition is that you have to have a majority in your own country that opposes the military adventures of your own leaders. That's the real precondition. I always say to people, you're not going to do anything until you have a, an anti-war movement that succeeds. And I think this is what the US left and the Canadian left just did not seem to get at all they say we don't want to waste time with like side issues like war no war is not the side issue war is the issue no nation that enslaves another can ever itself be free as marx said true now as it was then if you get a situation where and you you had one epic you know in the 1960s in america where the opposition are to the vietnam war began to combine with the civil rights movement you did have a process of very considerable advancing consciousness that's all been wiped out now but i think we're beginning to see some kind of return to that potential so i wouldn't really i wouldn't just say it can't happen what i would do is to say what do you have to do in order to create the best conditions for it to happen the answer is you have to oppose in every single aspect the war drive of your own government.
which includes, you know, finishing with this absurd Goebbelsian propaganda campaign against Russia, the whole Russiagate thing. The disaster that's overtaken America is the left go along with the, with the Miller inquiry and Russiagate. That, that, that's alone has set them back 20 years and they should have seen it coming. And it's not until they break with Russia break, with Russiagate, that you're going to get the slightest possibility of a, a serious advance in the revolutionary potential of uh, the dispossessed and working classes of, of the United States of the Gringos. Well, Mr. Freeman, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank you for being a guest on my show, and I'd like to thank you, the audience, for watching. Have a good night. Thank you for watching. If you like this program, then please head over to my Patreon page and set up a monthly donation. It's your donations that keep this program running. Also, if you would like, please rate, comment, subscribe, and share in various social media.